John 8. Last week we were in the uh, this first story, um, John 7:53 through 8:11, um, and uh, spent a good bit of time there. And uh, we said it's not original to the Gospel of John. Um, so this morning we're going to be picking up the uh, the storyline where we where we left off. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and get the uh, audio recording uh, from that uh, lesson last week. Um, Jesus is at the Feast of Booths. He's been there ever since the beginning of chapter seven. And it's going to go through the end of chapter eight and probably even into chapter nine. So this is a very short time in the life of Christ, and yet it expands a big chunk of the Gospel of John. Um, he's six months away from his hour of glory, crucifixion, resurrection, only six months from now. And at this feast, many are trying to seize him. They want to put him to death. Um, opposition is continuing to arise, um, and yet um, they're unable to. His hour has not yet come. And so we're six months away, um, and within the six months, especially at this time at the feast, his time is going to be spent teaching, especially revealing his person, his glory, his person and work, what he's come to do. And as he's being opposed, he's also going to be exposing the true heart condition of, of the people. So chapter 8 is, is really an amazing chapter. It is packed with these... Uh, these statements of Christ. Look where we're this morning. Verse 12, he claims, I am the light of the world. Down in verse 24, um, another famous statement, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Verse 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Verse 31, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. Verse 32, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then statement after statement of these um, Massive truths all the way to the very end. Verse 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is a packed chapter uh, with amazing, uh, amazing truths. So this morning, we're only going to be looking at verses 12 through 20. Verses 12 through 20. I've entitled it, I am the light of the world. Three compelling reasons to embrace Christ as your light. Look how it begins in verse 12 says again Jesus spoke to them now remember verses 53 chapter 7 53 through 8 11 is not original in the gospel of John so when it says again Jesus spoke to them it's referring back to chapter 7 verse 37 through 38 when he declared that he provides living water right so this is the second time that he's speaking to the crowd and he's going to speak again uh, by pronouncing another great fulfillment of this feast. So you remember back the uh, back in verse 37 to 38 when he says, come to me and drink and I'll give you living water. He's making a reference to one of these great traditions, rituals at this feast. Remember what that was? Um, there's this water pouring ritual they did. The priests would draw this water in this great procession and then they would pour it out at the altar. And we said that what it was doing, it was looking back and remember, it's commemorating God's provision of water from the rock in the wilderness. Um, it was a time of great celebration. But it also was meant to look forward to the day God would provide living water, end time water, which is promised over and over again in the prophets as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. 
And with this in the background, Jesus stands up and says, Come to me and drink, and I'll give you living water. I am the one that the Feast of Booths points to. I will give you the, the Holy Spirit, true spiritual life. There is also another ritual which took place um, at this feast. Um, and it, it provides the background for what, for what Jesus says. And that's our first point here. First reason to embrace him is because he fulfills the Feast of Booze as the ultimate provider of light. So there's this water pouring ritual going on, but then there was also this lights ceremony. Four very large torches were set up in the outer court, the, the court of women in the temple. And these torches would be would be lit. Um, listen to how the, uh, the Mishnah, the Jewish oral um, law, how the describes this uh, this tradition. It says, He who has not witnessed the rejoicings of the water drawing, that, that first ritual, throughout the whole of his life has witnessed no real rejoicing. In other words, it's an exciting, joyful occasion. At the expiration of the first holiday, it's the first day of this feast, they descended into the women's court where a great transformation was made. Golden candelabra were placed there, with four golden basins at the top of each, and four ladders were put to each candelabrum, of which stood four lads from the rising youth of the priesthood holding jars of oil containing 120 jugs. So these are massive things, right? With which they replenished each basin. The cast-off breeches and belts of this priest were torn into shreds for wicks, which they lighted. And look at this last sentence. There was not a court in Jerusalem that was not illuminated by the lights of the water drawing. So to complement this water drawing ceremony, there was also this ceremony in the evening, the first night, continuing all the way to the end of the feast, in which these giant torches were lit in the temple court. They're so large, it says, that the entire city of Jerusalem received light from them. It was illuminated from these, from these torches. So you tell me, if the water drawing ceremony looked back to and commemorated the provision of water from the rock in the wilderness, what do you think these torches were meant to commemorate? What's something from the Exodus reminiscent of, of these? Pillar of fire. Pillar of fire, right? I think that's exactly what it is referring to. It commemorated the provision of light in the pillar of fire, which accompanied Israel in the wilderness. What did the pillar of fire do? You remember? It had a couple of functions. Guided them. It guided them. It protected them, right? Yeah, got between them and Pharaoh's That's right. Army. That's right. They would have been toast without it. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. It was also a symbol of what? Sign of God's presence with his people. So presence and protection, you can sort of think. The two functions of the pillar of fire. So ceremony remembered God's provision, but it also looked forward to the day that God would return, renew his presence with his people. So remember, they reconstruct this temple after the exile, but the unique presence of God, you know, the cloud that would descend in the temple, it had not returned to the temple. They were still awaiting the presence of God to return. It looked forward to the day that he would come back to his people with his presence, his renewed presence, and provide the ultimate protection and restoration of his people in the kingdom. 
And it's with this ceremony in the background, all of that sort of uh, symbolism. Chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. Drop your eyes down to verse 20. It says that he taught in the temple, in the treasury, in the treasury of the temple. The treasury was located right next to the court of women, the place where these pillars were constructed and these torches were, were lit. In other words, it's right next to where Jesus is teaching. When he makes this statement, these torches are in, are in plain view, very clearly declaring that he again fulfills the Feast of Booths. So let's unpack this claim, um, what he makes here. Look at the astonishing claim of, of Christ. He says, I am the light of the world. This is the second of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. The first was, I am the bread of life, back in chapter 6, verse 35. Now he says, I am the light of the world. So what do you think he means? He says, I am the light of the world. Given the context of the feast and all the symbolism, what does he mean by that without looking at your outlines? What is he saying? I am the light of the world. Any ideas? Yeah. Well, is it? I guess it would be would be a reflection of his deity as well. Recognizing that as well. I think so. Excellent. Very good. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe illuminating the truth of who his father is. Amen. Excellent. Very very good. Other thoughts? Providing light to all the corners, like we're saying Jerusalem, you know how it covered. Huh? You know, he's providing light into the far regions of the darkness. Yes. That's really good. That's really good. And you see that in the in this verse. I'm not just the light of Jerusalem. I'm not the light of Israel. I am the light of the of the world. And in John, world always has sort of two nuances. One is always more dominant. One, it means this rebellious system in opposition against its maker. The other, the world means not the Jews only, but the nations, the Gentiles, the far reaches of of creation. You know, Mike, another so, thing yeah. the, uh, the reference back to John chapter 1, uh, yeah. you know, about being the light. The true light, which is coming. We're going to see that uh, yeah. in a little bit this morning. Very good. So let me unpack for you three aspects of what I think um, it means that he's the light of the world, given the context of this feast and the context of the Gospel of John. There's probably more you could say, but I think we could at least say these. Number one, what he means by he's the light of the world is that he is the God of the Exodus, the ultimate provider of God's presence and of deliverance. By claiming to be the light of the world, he's claiming to be the true and final pillar of fire for his people. He is the ultimate manifestation of God's presence with his people. John 1.14, the word became flesh and what well he tabernacled just as God and yet in a fuller final way among us like God in the tabernacle Yahweh is sometimes called light in the Old Testament let me show you a couple of verses here Psalm 27 the Lord is my light and my salvation Isaiah 60, 19, the sun, looking forward to the new creation, the sun shall no more be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord, Yahweh, 
will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Jesus here is claiming to be light just as Yahweh God is light. Light represents the glory and the presence of God. Jesus, as this light, is the very glory and presence of God, made flesh among us. The hope of the renewed presence of God, which this feast looked forward to, has become a reality through the incarnation and the cross work of Christ. It begins in this life for you, believer. You dwell with Christ in an inseparable relationship, even more close than Israel had with God in the temple. And you experience that in this life, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, that is how Christ has come to dwell with you, individually and corporately as a church. You experience this as a believer, and one day you will experience it in the fullest way. Listen to Revelation 2123, and the city, the new Jerusalem, the new creation, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And how does this glory shine through? What does it shine through? What is it? Its lamp is the Lamb, Jesus Christ. There will be no more night, no need for light, lamp, or sun. The Lord God will be their light. The idea is that the presence and glory of God the Father will forever be manifested and mediated through His Son, Jesus Christ. So let me, quick implication here. Do you want to behold the glory and splendor of God? How do you do that? You don't do it by contemplating and thinking of bright lights. You don't do it by going out and emptying your mind. You do it through Scripture. And you do it by faith in the Word, especially as it declares Christ and all of His glory to you. You want to behold God's glory? You do it here. Next, you want to be close to God. Intimate relationship with Him. This is the goal of creation, that God would be with His people and that they would proclaim that he is their God. Intimate relationship of God's presence. How do you experience that? There's no other way than by faith in Christ, his cross work. As you trust him, depend on him, you're experiencing the very purpose for which God created the world. Number two, he's God's ultimate revelation to man. Light in the Old Testament is often used as a metaphor for the scriptures. So, Proverbs 6.23, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching, the word there is the Torah, is a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Very popular verse, Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Both wisdom and Torah and scripture are called lights and lamps because their function is at revealing truth exposing reality. The presupposition of the Bible is that without revelation, if God did not talk to you through the scriptures, you would be left in the dark. 
if it was up to you and your own finiteness, and add on top of that your depravity, you would have absolutely no way of knowing ultimate realities. Who is God? What is he like? What is your problem? What is your need? What does God demand? Without revelation, you are in the dark. You have no way of knowing how you should live and please God. God's revelation is like light. It reveals what is there. It brings people to God. I think when Jesus claims to be the light of the world, he's saying that he is the final and fullest display of God's person to the world. Look back at John chapter 1, verse 18. It says, no one has ever seen God. It's a truth echoed over and over in the Old Testament. No one's seen God. But the only God who's at the Father's side is the Son, intimate with his Father from eternity, eye to eye with the Father. He has made him known. You want to know what God is like? know what he thinks, what he demands, what he promises, you must go to Christ, in Christ alone. You say, but Michael, doesn't the Old Testament teach us about God? Isn't the Old Testament true? Can't we learn about God from the Old Testament? And the answer is obviously, yes, it's the word of God. But think about it this way. God's ultimate and fullest revelation has come through his Son. And now it is impossible to know God rightly except through his son. That's because if you reject Christ, but try to hold on to the Old Testament as some way to knowing God like the Jews do, or like Muslims try to say they do, it's a massive contradiction, right? You would be claiming to love a lesser light while rejecting the fullness and... and, and total splendor of the glory of God revealed in, in Christ. You must do it through Christ. Yes, we learn through the Old Testament, but ultimately through Christ. You can't know God apart from Christ. He's the light of the world. Finally, he's the ultimate provider of, of life. Go back to John chapter 1. This is what Mark is referring to. John 1, verse 4. In him was life self-existing life. He's God from eternity, possessing life in himself. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And there was a man sent from God. His name is John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to every man, was coming to the world. The eternal, self-existent life of the Son of God became the light of man. So I, th I think what verse 4 is saying is that in the first creation, his life overflowed in the creation of light. But in his incarnation, his eternal life doesn't overflow in the creation of light. His life overflows into becoming light. So that all who beholds his light, his person, his glory on display, receives his life. So think about it like this. Light is indispensable for life. Where the sun does not shine, you can't get anything to grow. 
right? Except wire grass or something under your house. You have to have light. The sun communicates life. Life comes through the rays and the beams of the, of the sun. In the same way, the eternal life of God is revealed and brought into dead souls through the light of Christ, through the revelation of the person of Christ, what he accomplished for you on the cross in his incarnation, his crucifixion, his glorification. And it's received as we behold him by faith. So the life of God becomes your life, eternal life, spiritual life, through the light, the revelation of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on your behalf. Next, look at the implication of this verse for the natural condition of, of man. Look what it says. Chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. It implies that darkness is the natural condition of the world. So what does darkness represent? If light represents the presence of God, darkness represents the alienation from God, right? If light represents the knowledge and the revelation of God, darkness represents the ignorance of God. And if light represents the life of God, then darkness represents death and rebellion to God. Flip back to chapter 3, verse 19. This x-ray portrait we get of condition of man. Verse 19 of chapter 3, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world through Christ and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. It says people walk in the darkness. They live out their lives in their Darkness. And look what it says. People loved the darkness. That is, they loved their alienation from God. They loved their ignorance of God. And they loved their rebellion to God. That is the natural condition of man. And if you're in darkness, you're in danger, right? You're in danger of tripping over something. You're in danger of running into something. You're in danger of something that might be out there lurking for you. John tells us that what's out there lurking for you is not the devil. It's not sin merely. It's not bad choices, bad consequences. It is God. Look at verse 36 of chapter 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains still looming over his head. Those in darkness greatest danger is the looming judgment of a holy God about whom they're ignorant, unconcerned, and enjoy their darkness. God is man's greatest problem. And as such, God is also man's greatest solution. And that's what we get in John. Man is in darkness because of his rebellion to God and the only hope for escape from this is the light which comes from God. And for those who know their condition, there's only one logical response. And so what we get next, go back to chapter 8, verse 12. 
very first 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me. If you're in darkness, that's what you do with lights. The problem is not everyone realizes they're in darkness. So they're unconcerned with lights. But those who know it, this is the only logical response. It's what Israel did in the Exodus. That's what everyone who knows their condition do. They respond by following him. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. This is another word to describe true faith. You follow him as, your, as his disciple. You depend on him for what he reveals to you about God. You believe what he's declared to be true. You submit to all that he's commanded you. If you're trapped in darkness, you love, you cling to the light. You stick as close to it as possible. That's what it means to follow him. You've seen your spiritual darkness. You cling to the grace of God as it is revealed in Christ with all of your mind. He's your only life. He's your only only hope. One more thing, and then we're going to unpack a couple implications from this. The promised possession is the light of life. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Those who know their darkness see him as their only hope, and so follow him, and the promise is that they'll have the light of life. What is that? I think it simply means the light which produces life. You have, you have Christ, and he'll give you eternal life, true spiritual life, the forgiveness of sins, and reconciliation with your maker. That is life. It's to have a relationship with God. Follow Christ as your light and you'll have life now, more satisfying than anything the world can give you. And this life will spill over into eternity. So before we move on, let me just ask you a couple questions. Is Christ this for you? I believe I'm speaking to all believers here this morning. But that Christ is the light of the world is not just a message for unbelievers. It is. This is an evangelistic message. Believe in him. Receive him as your light. But in John, faith doesn't... It's not just a one-time act. It continues. It does what? It follows in the present tense. It goes on following him. You don't see him as the light and then retreat back in the darkness. You stay with him. You follow him. You see, you don't just begin by embracing him as your light, but you follow him as your light. So if you follow Christ as your light, here's a few things that will result. You'll have a relationship with him in communion. Do you enjoy regular fellowship with God through Christ? through dependence on what he's done for you, drawing near with confidence that the Father loves you with the same intensity that he loves his son. Not because you are like his son, but because you are engrafted into his son. Is it your delight to know God through Christ? Do you have real and consistent communion with the triune God as you meditate on his words, his person? his cross, his love for you. How's your prayer life doing? Is it influenced by the glory of Christ and God's purposes in him? Or is it myopic? Is it small, self-centered, dry, crusty? Is it influenced by the glory of Christ? Or have you forgotten Christ? How's your communion? Number two, 
you'll have a relationship with him which longs to be with him in his glory. Is that your eager expectation? To be with Christ? John 17, 24, Jesus prays that you would be with him to see his glory. Is that what you long for? If you follow Christ as your light, you'll have a relationship with his word. How do his words, his teaching, his promises, his commandments register in importance for you? Do you swim in those or do you just come and peck at them every once in a while? Take inventory the past week. How much time have you given to intentionally knowing him? Apart from him, you're in darkness. How many of your thoughts have been about him? Is the drive of your life following all that he's spoken to you and commanded you? Is that what fills your life? If he's light and you're in darkness, you're going to stick close to him. If you really believed him. You'll have a relationship with holiness. God is light and in him there is no darkness. Is the pattern of your life one which continually forsakes the darkness of sin? And believe me, there's a lot of darkness remaining in us. Is there a consistent pattern of forsaking it through confession and repentance as it is exposed and running to the light of Christ in his atoning work on your behalf? Is that a regular pattern in your life? Or is it one of belittling sin, ignoring sin, secretly coddling your sin, retreating into the darkness? Finally, there's a you'll have a relationship with his grace. You daily depend on his cross. Live in the light of his atonement for your sins. Do you depend on the grace of the gift of the Holy Spirit for you to help you bear fruit as you abide in his words? If Christ is your life. You're going to be saying these things. Lord willing, you're saying, yes, I see it, but man, I've got a lot of room to go. Welcome to the club. He's your light. Press into him. Cling to him. It's what it looked like if he is. Well, let's move on. We have couple minutes and a good bit of the text to go and we'll go through this quickly. Another reason is because he provides a credible testimony to us, verses 13 through 18. So he's just made another astonishing claim. I am the light of the world and all that that implied. Not sure how much of the people um, actually understood Jesus to be saying, but certainly they hear his allusions to the Exodus. And so in response, look at how the Pharisees respond to him in verse 13. They try to use his words against him. They say, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. So they're quoting Jesus. If you remember back in chapter 5, verse 31, that's what Jesus said, but that's not what he meant. Back there, Jesus said, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. What he was saying is, if I am alone testifying something about myself and there's not other witnesses then I can easily be, be dismissed anybody could claim anything about themselves that they want to and he was also saying that if I'm claiming to be the unique son of God and my father is not claiming the same thing testifying the same thing then I'm not true but Jesus is obviously not saying what the Pharisees are implying here that to simply make a claim about yourself automatically disqualifies you that's what they're saying you claimed about yourself, you made a witness about yourself, you can't be true. That's not what Jesus meant. It's really interesting, while the focus in these verses shifts from the topic of light to now the credibility of Jesus, 
So the idea of him being light is, is present. Listen to how D.A. Carson explains this here. The theme of light is not unrelated to the question of truthfulness and witness in the following verses. For light cannot but attest to its own presence. How do you know there's light? There's light, right? It's testifying to you that there is light. It is self-testifying. Otherwise put, it bears witness about itself, and its source is entirely supportive of that witness. Light by its very nature is self-testifying. Life by its very nature declares that it is light, and it is not discredited for doing so. That's exactly what Jesus is, is doing here. The Pharisees question him, not because his testimony lacks credibility, but because they're blind. They don't see the light. His testimony doesn't disqualify him any more than light's testimony disqualifies it. We'll look in the next here. Why? His testimony is credible. It's credible. Look at verse 14. Even if I do bear witness of my, about myself, my testimony is true. <coughs> so yes, I bear witness about myself, and my testimony is true. You are wrong. Well, why is it true? First, he tells us, sorry, it's based on Christ's certain knowledge of his origin and destination. What he says, for I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. He knows he's come from the Father. He knows he's returning to the Father. In other words, he speaks with firsthand knowledge and experience. Flip over to chapter 9. Give you an example of another person with this firsthand knowledge and, and experience. Man born blind. You know the story. Verse 8, people are asking, but this man saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, yeah, it's him. Others said, no, but he's like him. Look what he said. But he kept saying, I am the man. Very similar to what Jesus is doing. Self-testimony based on firsthand knowledge and experience. I am the man. If he were to declare otherwise, he would be lying, right? He has to. It's based on firsthand knowledge and experience, and that's what Jesus is doing here. I know where I've come from and where I'm going. That's why my testimony is true. But the Pharisees reject it because of their ignorance. What Jesus says, but you do not know where I come from and where I am going. They assume they know it. They don't know it. Amazing thing is Christ is light. He's come to shine in the darkness, but darkness by its very nature cannot grasp the light. Have you ever shown a flashlight into the sky on a dark, clear night? Where does it go? It disappears, right? If there's some fog, mist, it usually catches it, but if it's clear, it doesn't go anywhere. It shines into the darkness. That's what it says. The darkness can't grasp it, can't understand it. That's what fallen man is. They're darkness. Light is shining. They don't get it. They don't see it. It's just darkness. That's why God must cause you to be born again. Create life to see it. So they reject him because they're darkness, but they reject him because they're ignorant. But now the logical question is, should they have known where he came from? Should they have known where he was going? What's the answer? Should they have known that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, they should. 
They reject despite its clear demonstration. It should have been so plain to them that he came from the Father, that he's gone from the Father, that when they heard him declare this, they would have responded. We're almost out of time. Let me just quickly give you three ways they should have known this. They should have known it through, through his works, declares that he's come from the Father. So unique. No one's ever done anything like this. Chapter 9, verse 32. Read the man born blind when he says to the Pharisees. Should have been clear through the way his teaching perfectly aligned with the scriptures and fulfilled the scriptures, and it should have been clear through the Father's own witness to him. But they reject because they have a desperate heart condition. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, You judge according to the flesh. That is, you judge with completely superficial external factors, spiritual realities you're totally oblivious to. It also means you judge through the flesh, means you make evaluations through the grid system, the values and the beliefs and the desires of fallen humanity. You see, nobody starts out in neutral. Nobody unbiasedly evaluates facts. Everybody is committed to a value system. Everybody is committed to a belief system. Everyone is by nature wearing glasses through which they're interpreting all of the world, they're interpreting scripture, they're interpreting Christ, and they're tinted with self-love, and they're tinted with hatred of God and of sin-love. And by nature, man interprets everything through that grid. He presupposes ideas about what God should be like, what life should be like, based on his own fallen desires and opinions. It's all man-centered. And when the truth of God comes to him through creation or through the scriptures, what happens? He rejects it. Why? He's beginning with the presupposition of his own ability to know knowledge and that his own fallen desires are accurate. And he rejects God. That's what the Pharisees are doing. They're judging him according to the flesh. That's why you're not going to win anyone to Christ by proving the gospel to them, by giving them enough evidence there's no silver bullet of apologetics that, man, you get me every time with that. It just doesn't work like that. The fundamental problem is a heart condition. Say it this way. The prerequisite to knowledge of God is a right heart condition. Yeah, if you know God, it's going to change your heart. But at the same time, the heart condition of man is essential to knowing God rightly. Man, we could go over all these verses in John that we've seen and that we're going to see. People don't know Christ because of their heart condition. Well, let's move on. I could talk a little more about this, but we don't, don't have time. Christ's testimony is also credible because of its harmony with the Father's witness. Look at verse 15. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one, meaning I don't judge anyone in this way according to the flesh. But I still judge. I still evaluate people and myself. Even if I do judge, my judgment is true. Well, why? Because it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. And the law is written. The testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. It's true because it's in perfect concert with the Father. We've already seen in John, the Father testifies to the Son many ways, over and over again. It's credible. One thing I'll point out here, Jesus is testifying to himself, God the Son. God the Father testifies to Christ. 
And in John 14 to 16, the Holy Spirit testified of Christ. The entire Trinity testifies and proclaims the identity of Christ. That brings us now to the final reason. Because he's the exclusive access point to God. Look at verse 19. They said to him, where is your father? They mock him. Produce your father for us. Jesus says, you neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Sometimes he says, if you knew my father, you would know me. If you really knew God, if you're acquainted with what he's like, you'd see him reflected in me. He says that many times. It's not what he says here. He flips it the, uh, the other way around. He says, if you knew me, you would know my father. A knowledge of the son leads to a knowledge of the father. You reject Christ, there's no other way to know God. You do not know my father any other way except through me, his greatest revelation. So let me ask you, Jesus is the light of the world. Do you live like that? Do you follow him? Cling to him? Do you rest in his claims? Do you boldly proclaim him, knowing the condition of the hearts of men and resting in the sureness of his testimony, what he's given here? Do you follow the model of Christ in apologetics and in preaching the gospel? Or are you flustered by the unbelief of, of man? Do you know and rejoice in the truth that you know the Father? the Father, and the Father loves you. Christ. It's a rich passage, and we got much more to, uh, to go in the weeks to come. Any questions, comments? I have kept you way over this morning. So much here. Thoughts? Alright, let you go. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Help us to grow in clinging to him as our light. Love you. Prepare us for the service to come in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, better run and get a seat.